All right, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 12. Psalm 12. Now, we did Psalm 1 through 11, chapters 1 through 11. And those are in Sermon Audio. I think they're called uh, Christ in the Psalms. Of course, that's my goal is to bring out Christ in any text. And uh, it's not too tough to search. It's usually right there in front of us most of the time. This morning, I had an automatic restart on my computer to update something, and uh, it was still starting. I carried it out to my car and put it in the driver's seat as it was still going, and I got here and plugged it in. I got my notes up completely blank, no notes. (laughs) So I've got this open here just to look at my text, and I can't lean on my notes, which I believe when I do study... I think God brings things to mind for me to write down. Some people think, well, if you have notes, you're counting on yourself. No, I mean, when I study, I don't count on myself. I try to count on the Spirit of God to reveal things from the Scripture to me. At least one person specifically brought to mind to me that they had prayed for me, and it was kind of pretty much related to this very issue right here of God giving me something to say. And uh, if I didn't have something to say that I didn't think was from God, I know the safety of my own person. I would just say, you know what, let's not do a message this week. Let's just hang out and talk about the scriptures and and maybe about what your guys' burdens are. And I wouldn't preach. It's very dangerous to get up and just, you know, I'm just going to say whatever I want. There's a lot of preachers out there. But let's read through uh, Psalm 12 here real quick, and then we'll go back and look at some of these things. I'll try to remember what I studied here, and hopefully better than that, that God would bring things to my mind as we're right here, freshly to my mind that we could look at and hopefully be edified by. I'm reading from the modern King James here. The word Jehovah, the second word Jehovah in the King James and other versions are Lord. So when you hear Jehovah, it's the same word, Lord. Help Jehovah, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful fail from among the sons of men. They speak vanity, each one with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Jehovah shall cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks proud things, that has said, With our tongue we shall do much. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy. And I will now arise, says Jehovah, I will set in safety he who pants for it. The words of Jehovah are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace. Of the earth purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Jehovah. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked walk on every side with vileness is praised by the sons of men. As we minister the gospel in the church and we minister the gospel to people outside the church, we have to be reminded. Because we're human beings of the elevation and the reverence for the scripture, for the word of God. Scripture alone is our authority in all things. Sola Scriptura is 
one of the five solas of the Reformation. And that sola, scripture alone, was in place before the Reformation was ever thought of by man. The idea of scripture alone should be in our hearts. And as we deal with people, as we deal with one another, and as we personally deal with the scripture ourselves, we know that the truth is more important than us. The truth has more authority than our opinion. And as we deal with those in the church and those outside the church, as we are ministering the word of God, we need to leave our opinions out of it, our philosophies. As tempting as this may be, there are different styles of apologetics, whether it be evidences of science and different things like this. And some of those things are just so obvious that, and they're easy and tempted to be used to people and throw out to them in an argument against evolution or something like that. But we are presuppositionalists, which means we presuppose everything in the scripture is true. And as we are presuppositionalists, presupposing all things are true, we just don't blindly read those things and follow them without an understanding. We believe that God gives us an understanding so it is not a blind leap in the dark. And we need to stick with these bedrock, solid, unchanging truths that are our foundation for everything we think and believe. We'll talk more about that as we go along. So we need to, again, in the ministry, there's always like issues that pop up and sometimes we'll jump on them and we'll talk about them for a long time. But in the background, which really should be in the foreground, is this truth that scripture is our final authority and should be really our only authority. Confessions of faith are helpful. They're put together by men and they should reflect what the scripture itself says. We have one. We have an articles of faith. And so that's the way when this was tailored, it was taking from the scripture and systematizing it just kind of like a brief. Here's what we believe. Some people say that confessions of faith are not good to have because they're involved with humans and they're uninspired. Well, a, a preacher that says that shouldn't really preach. She should just get up and read the scripture and shut up and sit down. Right. And some of those same preachers say, you know, they, they say, do you have a confession of faith? They say, yeah, the Bible. Well, how many false churches say that? It's an interpretation of what the Bible says is what we promote. And that's what a confession of faith or articles of faith is. And that's what preaching is. It's unfolding the truths of the scriptures so that God's people can, by the power of the spirit, understand what God is telling us. Well, here in verse one. There's a plea here for God's help. And sometimes the same plea, I've had this plea here before, and we know other people in the scripture have had this plea. Help, Lord, the godly man ceases, and the faithful fail from among the sons of men. Sometimes we are battling in this life, and we are trying to promote the glory of God and his truth, his gospel. We are trying to gather his sheep, to the church and encourage them. And we're hoping that the church will be built up and we always hope for new people to come in and do the same. And then some fall out, some go away because they don't agree or some have lame excuses for not showing up. And that goes on for months and months and sometimes years. And then I'm not going to chase after people. The word of God 
says what we should do, what we should hear, what we should believe, what we should say. And I'm not going to go outside the realm of the Word of God and try to make people feel guilty for not coming here. Even people that belong to other churches that seem to say similar things. I'll try to appeal to the views that our church teaches and say, did you know your church teaches this? Sometimes people don't even know what their own church teaches. Do you know that your church teaches this, that, and the other? And um, they haven't been schooled in that area, so they don't think it's a big deal. And you unpack the implications of that, um, then it's either they don't see it as a big deal, or they're involved in a church for social reasons, which again is divorcing the word of God from what they're supposed to be doing. But there are several different reasons for possibly a discouraging attitude that we all might have about this plea here, like where are God's people? And how come those that seem to be faithful have just, we're down to just a few people, right? We know Elijah had that mindset, remember? He said, uh, you know, they've killed all the prophets, and and I'm the only one left, they're going to kill me. And the Lord said, no, there's... I've reserved 7,000 men that have not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000, that's a lot. Talk about a little bit less. What about Noah? Noah was told to build an ark. He was given specific instructions on how to build the ark. And his ministry lasted 120 years. And there were only eight people that were there amongst a possible possible billions of people on the earth at the time. Even if you just guess low, just say it's a million. Eight out of a million, that's a pretty big spread. That's the few versus the many. But if you if you Google it, try to see how many people are on the earth, some say there were billions on earth, and only eight were saved in the ark. Look at Isaiah, for example. Isaiah saw this vision of the Lord high and lifted up and uh, angels flying over the throne of God with six wings, two to fly with, two to cover up their eyes and two to cover up their feet. And they cried, holy, 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 speaking of the Lord. And then the, uh, who shall I send to go talk to these people? And Isaiah says, I'll go. And then the signification of the hot coal put on his tongue and he says, you know, how long do I preach? And God says, until their heart heart is dull and their ears wax gross. In other words, you're not going to have a, a, a typically what society says, the world says, is a successful ministry, Isaiah. What Isaiah did, he hang his head and his arms down and says, screw this. I'm not going to do this because this is not what Joe Blow down the road with his megachurch in the Old Testament is doing. No. He knew that the word of God goes out and succeeds in doing two things. It either converts or it hardens. So he went on with it. So that's what we should do. We sometimes get this Elijah syndrome. And uh, it's it's kind of tough to, to get out of. This is like, for me, so many other things that I forget that I remember and I forget that I remember <laughs> I have to be reminded that it is not about the amount of people it's not about what we think should be encouraging it's about the word of the Lord and 
God has everything on schedule. Those that want to be here are here. Those that are supposed to be here are here. I know whenever people find out, and I don't go around wherever I go saying I pastor a church. That's the last thing that comes up. And sometimes it's because you talk about a church you go to and you talk about the difference. And uh, I went to a conference one time. A lot of people from different churches were there. And I would ask, I would talk to people and ask them where they go and different things like that. They say, where's yours? It's in the Cincinnati area. And then they say, who's your pastor? Now, a lot of people would have already said, I'm the pastor at the church. Yeah. That was Charlton Heston's voice, by the way. But that's the last thing I say. And sometimes, you know, they, they straighten up and snap to attention. Like I didn't know I was talking to a pastor. I'm thinking, that's stupid. Because who is that guy that you were talking to five minutes ago? I guess he didn't matter, and only a pastor matters now. See what I mean? That's a skewed view of even dealing with people and being respectful of persons. But one of the questions that comes up shortly after somebody knows you're involved in a church, especially in a leadership position, how many people you got, right? I, I wish I had a dollar for every time I heard that. I, I wouldn't have to work next week. I could take a vacation week. But what do you think they would say if you said, well, last week we had less than Noah had on the boat, right? How would they react? Something's wrong. That's how they would react. Something's wrong with you and the church you go to. They don't even have to say it. Sometimes you can read it in their face or you can catch a snicker because they go to a church that has all the contemporary things that draw people in. But here's a plea for a, a, a psychological health in this idea of this negative view of where, where's everybody at and how come things are so wrong? I need some help here. I'm weak. You know what I mean? That's the plea. And then God starts making a distinction here between those that are faithful and the word, the word godly here is used. And, and this doesn't necessarily mean you know, people are walking around with a halo over their head. They don't do all the laundry list of things that religious people say not to do. It's not talking about this. It's talking about people that are separated by God, have been sanctified, that are saints. And we know that it's not conditional. We know that Christ died for the ungodly. We know that. We know he died for sinners. And every time I hear that, I, that's me right here, ungodly sinner. And we don't whip ourselves up into shape to qualify to be godly. God is the qualifier of godliness. He's the qualifier to be a saint. And we don't progressively hope to someday at the end be declared a saint like the Catholic Church does. That's the, the one extreme. You don't you wonder maybe though somebody, some council will declare you'd be a saint if you jump through so many hoops throughout your life. Those that are born of God, from the first second they're born of God, they are a saint. No matter how good or bad they perform after that. Those at Corinth with all their problems, Paul wrote them, called them saints. 
So here he makes a contrast. He talks about those that are that are not faithful to the word of God. He says that they, verse 2, they speak vanity, each one to his neighbor. The word vanity just means they're wa- it's a waste. They just have filler words. They might as well just not talk because they have no value as far as truth is concerned. They're not edifying. They only puff up the pride of man. These people, they speak vanity to each one, his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. Now the word heart here is nothing short of the word mind. We know in the New Testament we see the phrase double-minded used. Same thing. And flatter, if, if they speak vanity and have flattering lips connected to this double mind, they're going to be saying different things in different places to different people. You say one thing over here to this person, and at your convenience and to your advantage, you say something over here that won't get yourself in trouble with these other people. It's called compromise. It's called being ashamed of the gospel. It's called lying. And we see that all the time. Verse 3, Jehovah shall cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks proud things. Now, a lot of times this phrase, cut off, it could mean literally, I think it's Isaiah talking about Christ. He was cut off from the land of the living. It means he died. That literally happened. It's not figuratively. Well, here you could have a variety of things that this applies to. The Lord is patient, and he doesn't necessarily pour out his judgment and wrath right away. Like how that we think, you know, we see somebody say something blasphemous, we think, oh, if I had that lightning bolt gun, he would be done, right? Like right now. But the Lord has people treasure up, gather up wrath for the day of judgment. Some of God's enemies may later become his friends. Weren't we his enemies at one time in our minds with wicked works? And did we not say some stupid things with our flattering lips and our double-mindedness? Yeah, so since we know that, we ought to treat others with love and patience and kindness and continue to deliver the truth to them, hoping and praying that God would quicken them alive and give them faith to see what God has shown us in the scripture. So we are no better than them, in other words, even now. We know in the end that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So there's a vindication there of the truth of God, of the character of God. And when I see small little victories, I don't care if it's on in a personal conversation. I don't, I've, and I've been to public debates. I enjoy them because to me they're profitable. You can actually learn from them. And you can see vindication of God's character in debates, in conversations, in preaching. And in the end, where when everybody just is caused to shut up and God separates the sheep from the goats, there is the ultimate and final vindication of God. At the second coming, right before that. When Christ comes in flaming fire with his mighty angels, taking vengeance on them that know not God and believe not his gospel, 
there's a vindication of God's character, of God's truth. And we know that vengeance belongs to the Lord and he will repay. So let's not us use the weapons of our warfare as carnal weapons, but the weapon is what we're talking about today, the word of God. So let us guard against, let us be able to, to detect double-mindedness first in ourselves. In other words, we've got to be consistent. Let's not say and not do. Let's not speak with a forked tongue. Let's not ride the fence. This is safe. If I ride the fence, I don't have to call things absolute. I can just kind of be relative and subjective. We need to agree with God. All the God in Christ are yea and amen. It's not maybe what if, but it's yes. So we ought not be double-minded. So he will cut them off, whether early on, midway, or eventually. They'll be cut off, and God will be vindicated. The sentence continued. The tongue that speaks proud things. Now, we know in the scripture, one of the things listed that God hates is pride. Pride can come in many forms. And if we would zero it down in reference to salvation and who gets the glory for salvation, we can look at self-righteousness as being the height of pride. We know that when God wakes us up and gives us eyes to see and gives us repentance, pretty much that's what we zero in on. We, the, the righteousness that we were counting on before, which was our biggest trophy that we were proud of. By the power of his gospel and the power of the spirit, it is ripped from our grasp. And we are humbled and made low and we see that it's Christ alone. It's grace alone. And there is nothing that we contribute at all. If we think we contribute something, we're bringing pride back in. It's not 99.99% grace and we contribute or cooperate in that little small percent which is the key that would unlock the door. And that's not it. That's, not, that's a false gospel. Even if it is, if you would dial it in with um, a powerful microscope. I don't know if any of you have, have used a really, really powerful microscope. I told this story years ago when I worked at another place. We went into the lab and there was this microscope there and it was kind of actually that powers up, you know, and it's just, it's crazy big. And I put my um, finger underneath there and I saw my cuticle. It took a while to focus in, but I saw my cuticle and it looked like the moon. It looked like a, a nuclear uh, attack on the moon. And uh, there was some dirt in there too and some paint and different things that you just couldn't see with the naked eye. But it looked crazy. And if you would put some of the things that we hold to in salvation in times past, and as you talk to other people, that, that they can't even see. We can, we can see it because we've been given those eyes that now are like, sort of like a, a powered microscope. But we, we detect. And as we learn and grow, we detect them quicker. And we see them a mile away. Some of these people, they're, they're just encompassed 
with because we know what their heart is because they speak it out the mouth and, and they're laying out conditions. And they can even say, oh, I'm not saved by works. But the, it's just a different word. Conditions. What do you mean by that? And they explain it. It's works. <laughs> they're adding that to grace. We can see it a mile away. So we, from the scripture, take the gospel that rules all those things out. And what does that do with people as we open that up and explain it? It chops at the root, what? Of their pride. It's offensive. And they get angry and they get mad. The only thing that can change that is the Spirit of God giving them life and faith to see and repentance to throw that garbage away that they're holding to, that they're so proud of, that makes the difference between heaven and hell. And they walk on what they consider a Christ in his blood. And they say, well, you know, that's not the only thing that gets you to heaven. It's what I do with it, as they explain. They don't say those words, but it's pride. It's all it is. We recognize it. And we're thankful that God has shown us that because we used to be in that same category. So finish that sentence there. Let's start with the tongue that speaks proud things. And what does that tongue say? Here's one of the proud things that it says. It says, with our tongue, we shall do much. That conversation, I just explained how that when we talk about salvation to people, they're explaining that they do much in this salvation. Right. A blatant example is the guy that we always pick on in um, Matthew 7, who said, as Christ kind of fast forwarded for us at judgment, he said, many will come to me in that day and say, but Lord, Lord, haven't I done this or that? I've cast out demons. I've prophesied your name and in your name done many wonderful works. Right here. Proud things. He was saying the things that were, in his mind, making the difference between heaven and hell. And at best, he was saying, at least these are the assurance of my salvation. Which proves what? Said it, especially during the Lordship series, that the assurance of your salvation is the same as the object of your faith. The object of your faith is the assurance of your salvation. It better be Christ alone. Because if it's not Christ alone, you're counting on something else that is competing with Christ for the glory that Christ alone owns by his effectual atonement. With our tongue, we shall do much. And notice this, he goes on redundantly. The fool, the proud fool goes on a little bit more and heaps it on. And he says... Our lips are our own. Our lips are our own. So the proud boast of the autonomy, the, the independence that they have from God. And the next line is, who is Lord over us? It's denouncing the Lordship of Christ. I'm my own Lord. I am the captain of my own destination. This is the typical free willer. And a person doesn't even have to be religious to be a free willer. It's just our, the natural humanistic philosophy of I 
run my own show. I will not have that God rule over me. There's a statement in scripture that says I can't recall off the top of my head where is that where it's at. But after God was displayed and explained, they said, I'm not, I'm not going to have that God rule over me. And I've had conversations with people concerning the gospel and even people who claim to believe sovereign grace, Calvinistic reform doctrine. Even those people, as I am talking about the gospel, they have said pretty much the same thing. They have made the distinction for me that my message made. For them, I didn't even have to say it. They said that your God is a monster. I pretty much knew that before they made that announcement. But even some people that I was really close to over the years that I knew all my life said that that go to those type churches that give speaking of lips, they give lip service to sovereign grace. So they flatter, they speak proud things. They think they run their own destiny. Verse 5. For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy. Do you ever sigh before when you're disgusted or worn out or at the end of your rope? I mean, it gives away a lot of what's in your mind when you do that. I've seen kids do it too, you know, that aren't as advanced as adults, but it's just natural. Like the size, like seriously, I got to do this, right? Well, those that are oppressed of the poor and are needy, they sigh too in, in this plea, in this cry for, can it get any better than this? Is this all I got? Is this all I'm being treated this way by these people that are taking advantage of me? I will now arise, says the Lord. I will set in safety he who pants for it. The English standard, one of the very, uh, there's several versions here I could look at, but I remember looking in my uh, study yesterday about this. Toward the end there, the English standard version says, uh, I will place him in safety for which he longs. And don't we all long for Safety, especially spiritual safety, right? If you're in a battle, you long for safety. There's certain things. I mean, you got a helmet, you got a bulletproof jacket, and you actually hopefully have a superior weapon in your hand that you're using, and you got plenty of ammunition. That's the feeling of security in a war, at least. A feeling of security, spiritually speaking, it goes for the same. We, we trust a God who, he's already stated some things in these verses here that he's, taking care of business. He's already, we know that God has won the battle via the cross. He's already defeated Satan, death, hell, and the grave. We are not going to be under judgment. The bat, that battle's over. Judgment was placed on Christ by Christ being made a curse, by sin being imputed, our sin being imputed to him. And we're in a state now of the non-imputation of sin. We can't be charged with sin. We have assurance only in Christ He's presented us unblameable, unreprovable, and perfectly holy in his sight. As we are, as Christ is, we are in this world. We're just like him. When the Father looks at us, we are just like Christ. We are just as righteous as Christ. Why? Because we have his righteousness. 
All those things. Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's a rhetorical question. Nobody. Well, will God? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. He won't. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So we come to God needy and poor. We don't have our own righteousness. And we get one, finally, from Christ when the Father transfers that merit of that whole work to our account. And we see, we already see a vindication there. That is ever, hopefully, ever before our eyes. We come every week to be reminded that should ever be before our eyes. When you're down and you feel like that, that things are just, <clears throat> circumstances are ridiculous, don't forget that main point. <clears throat> you can look at what happened to Job. You can look at what happened to Lazarus, the one that was the beggar. It had boils all over. The dogs come up and licked his boils. I don't think we're there yet, right? We got it okay. We got it pretty good. We're not where Lazarus and Job were. So we have this we have this groaning within our spirit of just. I was talking to somebody on the phone the other day, and they said they have some health issues. They said. Actually, two people this week. And they said, I'm ready. They're, they're both in their 60s. And I said something like, man, uh, one of them was like, I, I was only 10 years younger than them. And uh, they said, well, I know some people that are 20 years older than me, and they're still around, and they're probably still saying the same thing. I'm ready. <laughs> ready to go, right? Well, I don't, I don't have that many health issues, and I know what it is to have pain from here and there, but temporarily. And I kind of know what they're talking about. But we went on in our conversation to talk about our worldview, how that every single day we are in this battle and everything coming at us is a perverted lie. Every philosophy, everything is just totally against the scripture. And it's, it's a constant battle, constant battle. And the longer that it goes on, the worse that it is. Evil men shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's a promise. It's not going to get any better in that area. So the centuries of heresy that have built, and then you're asked these certain questions, and you think, i got to plow through a couple thousand years of lies to expose certain things that maybe in your mind, as you're giving them the truth, it's very tiring. We long after that safety, especially that final and complete safety, when we're glorified. We are told in Romans 8 that the whole creation groans. And when we have this attitude of, of uh, just despair sometimes, it, it says that the Spirit prays for us and speaks the things that we're only trying to say. And we know that he knows what we need before we even ask. And we know about that advocate we studied about a few weeks back, that he's at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us, causing us to draw these things out of us and to communicate with our Father. But there are oppressors out there is what I was getting at. Whether it be, there, there are literal, physical oppressors of material things to people. There are spiritual oppressors, those that would 
withhold truth from people, that would purposely lie to people, that maybe are taking people's money when it comes to religion, that are withholding people from expressing their spiritual gifts, just treating people the opposite of the way Scripture says to treat them. There is an oppression. We know about edification. We just talked about that, I think, for three messages. And the idea of edification is the very opposite of that. It's the building up of people and pointing them to Christ and exhorting people. Don't knock people down. Build people up in Christ. You see it everywhere. And people are sneaky about it, too. And you're going to see more of it, guarantee you. People will creep in here and try to do it. People have. Notice verse 6. Here is the highlight. This is why I had uh, Eric read First Peter chapter 1, especially verses 23 through 25, relates to this. There's the, always that contrast in Scripture of um, the futility, futility of man and his lies and the enduring word of God. Verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Now, I, I'm not somebody that, like uh, some of the dispensationalists, for example, like to get numbers and get crazy with them. We were talking about that a couple weeks ago, Andy, about the numerology thing, how they just, everything has to do you got the Bible code. You know, there's some kind of secret Bible code. Oh, who cares what the Bible literally says? Let's find some kind of ancient code in there that you can't prove. It's ridiculous. Seven times here, it's just it's a typical of perfection. We know God's word is perfect. He can't lie. We know that Christ is the truth. He is the way. There's no other way. There are no other ways. He's the truth, and he is the life. I want to just take that little part, he's the life, and bring it back a little bit and talk about some of the things we mentioned earlier on when it comes to circumstances or things that we're involved with that we may be discouraged that we shouldn't be because they're not eternal, they're temporary. And for example, we got a new car, newer car, the other day. I mean, it only cost uh, $8,700, and 84 of it was insurance money. Me being a cheapskate, I, I would not go out and pay what we paid for that car unless I got insurance. It's just I'm the kind of guy that shops half price day at Goodwill. That's the kind of guy I am. Well, when he, when I got that car, you know, uh, I rode in it with Becky and we test drove it. I said, it's a pretty good car. Let's get it. You know, We agreed. And it wasn't until the other day I drove it by myself. It's like, daggone, this is nice. And that thing in my mind later on when I was looking at this, I thought of Christ saying that he is the life. I remembered a phrase that you've probably heard throughout your life is when things are going good and you're in a situation that's really nice, you say, man, this is the life, <laughs> right? You've heard that. You may have said it. And I understand what that means in, in a particular circumstance. But bring that to the spiritual sense. When you are shown that what you used to hold to was vanity, was pride and self-righteousness. And, and God has graciously taken that away from you. And you're placed in Christ by faith. You, you see that, no, this is the 
No matter what happened, no matter if I only have a car or if I have food or if I'm like Lazarus or Job, this is the life right here. We saw in Hebrews before how that in the end, God who spoke in times past and he just spoke and shook the earth in latter times, he yet will again, will not only speak and, and shake the earth, but he's going to shake heaven too. He's going to wipe out everything. And it says in Second Peter, he's going to burn everything. And all this stuff that we are so attached to and lean on for comforts, it's going to be gone. And the only thing that's going to be left is our life in Christ and the truth and that only way that he is. That's the only thing that's to be left. So if you're not in that now, counting on that, then you have no hope. I don't care if you're the richest person that ever lived. I mean, Solomon, he said he had all that stuff. He said it's vanity. He said it doesn't matter. It's a waste. We're so, especially in America today, we're, we're spoiled. We got the air conditioner cranked back there, you know. And if it was uh, last week, we didn't have that. Uh, I mean, if somebody said, you want to cancel? I'd say, well, at least let's go someplace else, you know. <laughs> Come to my house where I have air or something. Else. I mean, we are spoiled, right? We will just do things temporarily to just get some relief physically or mentally or psychologically. Those ideas creep in the spiritual sense, too. People are seeking relief where we shouldn't be seeking relief. He is the way, the truth, and the life, always and forever. We've got to be reminded of that. But his words are pure words. And I just want to we'll look at the next verse. You, O Lord, will keep them, speaking of his words. You will preserve him. The word of the Lord endures forever, read in First Peter. It, it doesn't change. It endures forever. Everything may change. It doesn't matter. God's word endures forever. It's always been the absolute truth. Whether anybody believed it or not, the whole world can be against it. It doesn't matter who's against it. It's true. It stands. And this is why God's people, because they're so few, they have crucified themselves from the world and the world has crucified themselves to you. And your rule that you walk by, Galatians 6, 14 through 16, is God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world thinks that's stupid. That's where we got to stand right there. I glory in the cross of Christ, what the cross of Christ accomplished for me and his people. And that's offensive to people because, again, that chops at the root of their pride because they want to glory in their tongue that they think is their own and they are their own Lord. So God makes his word endure from all generations forever. And in verse eight, it just talks about the just kind of addresses the wicked again. They're just they're just going to keep doing their thing until they are eventually cut off, as it says in the previous verses. They're just doing what wicked men do on every side. They're vile. They prowl. We should expect it. In conclusion, I just want to say that the importance of gathering together with God's people and when we are not gathered together during the week, the importance of going back to his word to be reminded, to be engaged with God in prayer, 
to be engaged in gospel meditation, to constantly remind ourselves of these things. Because when we're not exercised, we tend to want to, because we're human beings, we're sinners. We want to slip back, and lean on our own understanding or lean on the arm of the flesh. We have to be reminded that we're, we're like grass that fades away. And we need to count on the word of God's scripture alone. And we need to constantly remind everybody in here and everybody outside here we talk to the respect and authority of scripture, the reverence of scripture, scripture alone, everything that we say and do and think. We're going to make it pretty, it doesn't matter if the decision is big or if the decision is little. Run it through the wisdom of the word of God. Scripture says that in Christ dwells all the treasures of wisdom. That's for us. What are the treasures of the world? We read some of them here. Pride, vanity, flattering lips, temporary, garbage. It's foolishness. It's foolishness. Christ alone. His word alone, and we have faith alone. And, of course, there is alone God be the glory in all this, too. Look to him. Look to his word. Even so much more, as it says in Hebrews 10.25, even so much more as you see the day approaching, because the days are getting more evil with this enemy in here of which we used to be a part of. So let's constantly exhort one another to these things. Any questions or comments? I probably ought to ditch my notes more often. <laughs>